0: Hello, and welcome back to the Do Theology podcast. This is Jeremy, and today we're sharing this bonus episode with you, uh, something that we just think is relevant. This is a Sunday school lesson that I taught on the conscience. Basically, the class was two parts. What is the conscience, biblically defined? And within that, how does it differ between believer and unbeliever? And then the second part of the class was... What is the Christian's responsibility with not only our own conscience, but with the consciences of our fellow believers? So uh, as if you're familiar with the chart, you know that the third column is all about conscience matters, and that makes this lesson particularly relevant. I did teach really fast, <laughs> so it's just fast. I'm just letting you know that. But, uh, man, I'm so thankful for my church, so, so thankful for a church that allows me To teach like this and to have fun. Man, I I just, I really love my church. Hope you do too. And uh, the audio was just a little not great with my microphone, and that's my fault. I adjusted a a setting that I should not have adjusted, and uh, that made me sound a little distorted sometimes, but it's definitely listenable. And we have our classroom set up to where you can hear the questions and feedback from the students, so you should be able to hear them just fine, which is a blessing. Before we get into the lesson, I do want to mention that today's episode is sponsored by West Eden. Thank you to West Eden for sponsoring today's episode. Go to WestEden.co and get 15% off with code Theology 15 That's theology 15 Use that checkout at WestEden.co. It's Christian apparel. If you're looking for a great Christian shirt or a sticker or a keychain, all kinds of stuff. Go to WestEden.co. They've got great stuff, and you can get a discount with code DUTHEOLOGY15. All right, let's just jump right in to my Sunday school lesson on the conscience. So the first thing we need to do is just define the conscience, okay? And several of you probably know what the word literally means. You see I have it written up here with a line between con and science, because those are the two words that make up conscience. And what do these two words mean? Very good. So, con is with, and science is knowledge. Now, what language does this come from? (laughs) It does come from Latin. The word conscience comes from Latin. Uh, And that's where we, uh, the word con means with in Latin. It also means with in Spanish, doesn't it? And uh, the word science means knowledge in Latin. But what's interesting is even in the Greek, the New Testament Greek, the word for conscience means with knowledge. It's also a compound word meaning with knowledge. And so it's fair to define it that way, whether you're talking about Latin or Greek as meaning with knowledge. Now, that is a very simple, that's a very uh, short definition. (laughs) It doesn't really tell you a whole lot, does it? Well, what is the conscience? It's with knowledge. Okay, so you see on your sheet before you, I have a long definition, and I'm going to give you some blanks to fill in, all right? I expect to have all, uh, you all to have this memorized by next week. <laughs> there will be candy and gold stars on the table. All right, so here's my long definition of the conscience. It is the nucleus of moral obligation. The nucleus of moral obligation... Given by God to all people. And that's where we just first stop and we say, okay, you could stop there and say that's what the conscience is. But there's more to the story. Because among saints, God personally cleanses and shapes it in the truth. Among saints, God personally cleanses and shapes it in the truth. And here's what's incredibly fascinating resulting in both common assurance and unique lifestyles. So among the saints, God personally cleanses and shapes the conscience and the truth, and the result of that is a common assurance that we all share, assurance of salvation, yet also it results in unique lifestyles. So it results in this major thing that we have in common, our salvation, but it also results in Totally individual, unique lifestyles, where no two of us have the exact same convictions about every single thing. I think that's fascinating. I, I love talking about this stuff, all right? And Scripture talks a lot about the conscience, and you see all those verse references. We're going to start looking at those one by one. But I, I do want to make a note here that Scripture never uses the phrase or the term guilty conscience. Do you think that's interesting? Because we use that phrase all the time. And I'm not saying it's wrong to use that phrase. Just a note, Scripture never says guilty conscience. Never does. Instead, we have other adjectives that get used, and you're going to see those in the passages as we look through them. Now, all people, Christian or otherwise, have a conscience. All people. That's the first line of the definition I gave you. The nucleus of moral obligation given by God to all people. So all people, Christian or non-Christian, have a conscience. But there are major differences. And because the word conscience means with knowledge, we should first examine the knowledge difference. When it comes to believers and unbelievers, what's the difference in our knowledge and how does that affect our conscience? So let's look at Romans 1 and 2. You see those references on your sheet. Romans 1 and 2. And what someone... Take the Romans 1 passage, who can get that for us, Jerry? And someone who's going to get Romans 2, Andy. So I want you to listen to the knowledge of the unbeliever. Now knowledge is, is distinct from conscience, but they, they're inextricably tied together. Kind of like faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are, are different, yet they're just tied together. <laughs> and so the conscience and knowledge are different, but they're just—you can't separate them. So now I want you to hear the both of these passages, speak, or passages are speaking about the unbeliever. I want you to hear what God says about the unbeliever's knowledge. Jerry, go ahead. Have Romans 1, 18 to twenty three.
1: God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile their speculations and their foolish hearts was darkened professing to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed
0: animals and crawling creatures okay well this is the unbelievers knowledge which we could call natural knowledge Everybody's born with some sort of God-given knowledge. And according to this passage that Jerry just read, what are some things we can say about the unbeliever's knowledge in this natural, unsaved state?
2: God is testifying
0: by nature. Okay. um, So they know God exists. Yes. Through... Nature's testimony. They live inside an amazing creation. All creation has to have a creator. And it says quite strongly in that passage, God has made it evident to them. God has made his existence evident to the unbeliever. So anytime anyone tells you, well, I'm an atheist, say, God doesn't believe in atheists, right? God has made his existence evident to the unbeliever. And you can show them Romans 1, and Romans 1 goes well with uh, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It doesn't say the uninformed has said in his heart, there is no God. There's no such thing as someone who is uninformed about God's existence. God has informed him. But the fool has said in his heart, that means this is a moral issue, not a knowledge issue. That's a, that's a paradigm-shifting doctrine to embrace, okay? But, but what else do we see in, in Romans 1? We can think of one or two more things about natural knowledge. It suppresses the truth. All right, so in that natural knowledge, is it sufficient to save anybody? This knowledge that we're born with that God exists? No. Okay, why not?
2: Because this is... to have repentance
0: and faith Save. And how do you get repentance and faith to be saved? Say it. Okay, but who, who, con- who conjures the faith and repentance? Okay, because what do we do on our own? Nothing. Do we g- muster our own faith and repentance? Okay, so what does Romans 1 say that we do naturally? What do we do? We suppress the truth. Okay, all right, all right. So the knowledge is naturally suppressed. Why? 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 <laughs> I'm not showing you the answer until you tell me. Why is the knowledge naturally suppressed by everybody? Okay, 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 okay. Because man is sinful. Man is born in in a state of sin. In sin, my mother conceived me. Psalm 51. Romans 1 says, God has made His presence evident to all people, but what do people do when they're left to their own devices? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what Jerry just read from Romans 1. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what do they replace the truth with? And who told them to do that? Who instructed them to do that? Their own hearts. So, yeah, no one had to come in and say, here's how you, here's how you believe a lie. Right. It's natural. So just as the knowledge is natural, first point... The suppression of the knowledge is natural. You getting this? Again, it's, these are key elements of what we believe about mankind, okay? All right, Romans 2, uh, Andy. Romans 2, 12 to 16. And again, we're listening, about, we're listening to hear about the unbeliever's knowledge.
2: For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law.
0: What did we just learn about the natural state of the unbeliever's knowledge as it pertains to morality? It's written on their hearts. All right. There, we can say there is intuitive morality. Notice it says, when, the, when those without the law do by nature... What the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Well, who gave them their nature? God did, right? So they still, even though by nature they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they still are made in the image of God. And because of that, by nature, they reflect something of God, don't they? They still reflect something of God in their living I mean, how many unbelievers today, go poll your neighborhood, people who are legitimately not Christians, there's just no way they're Christians, poll them and see how many of them say, oh, murder's fine. None of them are, right? None of them are going to say that. Why? Because there's something of the image of God there, and by nature, they're doing what the law requires. And now, are they consistent in this? No. Because they may have just taken their relative to the abortion clinic last week, right? Are they consistent in this? No. But is there something there that says this is wrong? Yeah. Lying, deceit, go down the line. Covening, adultery. There's something there on their hearts that says this is wrong. So this is just a, a crazy thing about the unbeliever's knowledge. They know God exists through nature's testimony. There's an intuitive morality, and yet there's this sin nature that's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness leading to this inconsistency in life, this rebellion. And their conscience, it says, what in Romans 2, that passage, what is their conscience doing? It alternately, it's like one of those oscillating fans. It's over here, and then it's over here. It's either excusing them, they come up with reasons why they're not guilty, or it condemns them and they feel the weight of their guilt because of their knowledge, their natural knowledge. It's, so what we're learning here is through the conscience, natural knowledge is enough to condemn a person. Not, not enough to save, never enough to save, but it sure is enough to condemn, isn't it? To be saved, you have to know what God did to take care of your sin. They don't have that knowledge by nature. That's why we send out those beautiful feet to go proclaim the gospel. But in their natural state, their conscience is condemning them because of their their understanding of morality and the existence of God. Now, for the believer, it's different. Someone uh, grab 1 Corinthians 2 and someone grab 1 Corinthians 8. You see those references? Who's got 1 Corinthians 2? Joseph, and who's got 8? 1 Corinthians 8? Tyler, all right, so again, listen to the believer's knowledge. How is the believer's knowledge different from the unbeliever? Go ahead when you're ready there, Joseph.
2: It says, uh, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things really given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words.
0: Alright, what did we just learn in those two verses from 1 Corinthians 2? What did we just learn about the believer's knowledge that's distinct from the unbeliever's knowledge? This should be pretty obvious. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. New Spirit. Alright. Gonna be a little more detailed? Spirit from God's Spirit. Okay. So the Holy Spirit, what's he doing?
1: He's
0: really giving it to us. Alright, so I'm just going to sum it up here. The Holy Spirit is giving us God's words, isn't He? Now this doesn't happen like on an individual basis we're all getting our own little customized Bibles in our heads. That's not what this is saying. But through the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is instructing us in what God wants us to know, right? As we open up the Word of God, as we study the Word of God, we're not doing it on our own. You're not doing it in your natural state, if you're born again, but you're doing it in a new spiritual state, having been born again by the Spirit, having been filled with the Spirit, having been sealed by the Spirit. And as you're hearing from God in His preserved Word, you are learning directly from God Himself. I always uh, like to use the illustration, you know, when you can go to a mall or a store, and it's meet the author day, and you can take your book and get it signed. Every time you read the Word of God as a believer... You're reading it with the author. Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, and the capital A author is working in your mind, working in your heart, to teach you and apply these things to your life. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And that's quite distinct from just a general, natural knowledge that God exists and that we're condemned. It's more than that. And in 1 Corinthians 8, we'll see some more. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4-7, to Tyler. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father,
1: from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one
0: Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Alright, so that last verse there brings in the conscience in relation to our knowledge. He says that not all believers have a full grasp on this doctrine of God, and so their consciences remain weak. The inverse of that is that as we grow in the spiritual knowledge of God, as we grow through the Word of God, as we grow in grace by the truth, it's a process and it leads to a strong or stronger conscience. The more that we understand about who God is and what we've been designed to do and what we're free to do in grace, our consciences then are stronger to be able to live freely. The less we know, even as believers... The less we know, the less we understand about God, the less we know about God's word, the weaker your conscience is likely to be. All right? So there's a direct interplay between conscience and knowledge. I hope you're seeing that. I'll stop there for thoughts or questions if you have any.
1: (laughs) Well, there's other aspects to that which are very complex, how our knowledge and
0: conscience
1: so it's not a machine.
2: Yep. And you grow up
1: with a real high view of the Lord's Day, and then you get a job where you have to work on Sunday, even though you know that the Lord's Day isn't
0: mm-hmm. special in that way. Well, mm-hmm. that could be to be comfortable working on Sunday. Well... Yeah, and we, we're not saying here that knowledge is the only factor that shapes conscience. Because uh, if you go back to the definition at the top, it says, Among saints, God personally, and we'll, we'll touch on cleanses here in a bit, but He personally shapes our conscience in the truth. It's a personal endeavor that God undertakes with us, and we're going to dwell on that here in a little bit, which is quite astounding. That God is so intimately, personally involved with us in our lives today that He's molding and shaping each and every individual conscience for His purposes to direct you and lead you to the exact places that you'll go. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we saw that that last verse, the one that mentions both knowledge and conscience, also mentions customs. That some are accustomed to idol worship, and so it's
2: an issue for them. Yes. Knowledge, customs, and knowledge all. Yep.
0: Yep, experience, yeah. The, our background, how we grew up, yep. Andy.
2: So, going back to your statement that the more one knows, the more a Christian knows of God's word, the stronger their conscience becomes. And that plays directly to what we said last week with the weaker, the stronger
0: brother. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. And it's, it may not be like a Jerry was just saying, it may not be that the more you grow in knowledge, you know, a direct one-to-one correlation, the stronger your conscience will become. But it's fair to say your conscience cannot grow stronger without your knowledge also growing. Okay? Not all, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are square sort of situation. All right? <laughs> that made it more complicated. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the judicial status of the conscience, how that differs from the unbeliever and the believer. So you see we've got three passages there listed for the unbeliever. Matthew 15, it's a bit of a longer passage. Who can get that for us? Matthew 15. Anthony, that's right. Okay. And then uh, Titus 1:15, just one verse. Who can get that one for us? (laughs) Amy, thanks. And then 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3, Logan. All right. So, uh, at first we'll just read the Matthew passage and the Titus passage, and I want you to think about the adjectives that are being used to describe the unbeliever. We're going to see the same adjective in Matthew 15 and in Titus 1, Titus 1 directly unites it to conscience, but I want you to listen to Jesus' teaching on the, un- the status of the unbeliever, the judicial status of the unbeliever. So let's go ahead, Anthony, with Matthew 15, 11-20. are you also still without understanding? Do
2: you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person.
0: For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Okay, now listen to this verse that Amy's gonna read for us. Titus 1.15. Listen for that same adjective. Go ahead.
1: To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled.
0: What's the adjective? Defiled. defiled. This is the natural judicial status for the unbeliever. Some people might think you're born into a clean state. No. That's not what Jesus is teaching. That's not what Titus is teaching, or Paul teaching in his letter to Titus. That's not what Scripture is teaching. You're not born into a clean state. You're born into a defiled state. Nothing from the outside comes along and makes you defiled. We're just born, it's bubbling up from the inside. So defiled, both, and can you read yours again, Amy, if you still have it, Titus 1.15? To the
1: pure.
0: So, notice it says conscience. Their conscience is defiled. And also their mind. Their mind. I I think this plays right in with Romans 1. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Why are they doing that? Because they're defiled in their mind. It's what they do by nature. It's very natural for the unbeliever to suppress the truth and and replace the truth with a lie. Because the unbeliever's mind and conscience are polluted, you could say. Or corrupted. Or corrupted. These are strong adjectives that Scripture uses. And now, uh, Logan, could you read 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3? Listen, this is going to give you um, an idea of where this status could eventually lead. So go ahead.
1: 4, 1 to 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the
0: truth. Alright, so some go on to be seared in their conscience. To be seared. This is talking about unbelievers. Believers cannot have a seared conscience. You don't get that in Scripture. This is the only place you get the seared conscience, and it's in the realm of unbelievers. And seared, you can, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to totally understand what Paul had in mind. I mean, you could think about searing a steak. You guys ever do a, a seared steak or a reverse sear method with your steaks, you know, all that, to lock in juices in the steak. You could say that their consciences are seared, or they're just locked in, nothing can get in or whatever. I, I don't know if I'd go that route. Uh... Seared more likely refers to a branding iron that's used to denote ownership. You know, when you, when you sear a steak when it's still alive, <laughs> Aww, that was, that was <laughs> when, you, when you get that branding iron on that cow's you know, back leg or wherever you put it, you're denoting ownership, aren't you? And some people are seared in their conscience, their own, totally owned by their sin. And quite possibly never to be redeemed. That's only the Lord knows. That's not for us to know. But that's a pretty serious state. Either way, we could say, right? To be seared in conscience, not free, not strong, not clean, but defiled and seared. Slave to what you cannot. Yes, enslaved. Enslaved. Yes, that's it. Now, let's look in comparison to that. The believer's conscience. Okay, Hebrews nine. And Hebrews 10. One person get both of these passages for us, would you? Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, and then Hebrews 10, 22. Who's got those for us? I got it. I don't want the same people to read all class, okay? So <laughs> let's let's uh, let's stretch ourselves and see if we can get brave enough to read. All right, Hebrews 9, andy you can go ahead and read these. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, and Hebrews 10, 22.
2: For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God.
0: All right. And 10.22.
2: drawn near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water.
0: Very good. So in both of these passages, we are seeing an ultimate, total, and irreversible cleansing by God. Where were we? We were right over here with the rest of mankind, weren't we? We had a need for cleansing because we were defiled, polluted, corrupted and through jesus christ what do we get ultimate total irreversible cleansing amen Amen. and our consciences are set free by god at this point we're no longer enslaved there's no chance of to be seared in conscience we're set free in conscience irreversibly We are judicially free in the eyes of God. And in Romans 14, we've learned about these unique lifestyles that flow from the free conscience, the clean and free conscience. Now we're free to go out and explore this big world by God's truth and allow God to shape and mold us however he wants us in conscience. And this is just an amazing evidence of the personal nature of God's involvement. Because sometimes we will get charged against us because we don't speak in tongues and we don't say that there's any prophecy still today. So we get leveled against us that we believe the Holy Spirit's dead or we believe God's not involved. This is pretty deep involvement when you say, why can't you watch that movie? Why can't you work on Sunday? Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? Because God is so involved in my life that he's either bound or loosened my conscience to do or not do these things. That's incredible to me. That's absolutely incredible. Thoughts or questions on the judicial status? Yes, Summer. Sorry, I'm going backwards. No, it's okay. That's all right.
2: So in the Timothy one, the one Timothy four. Yep.
0: So why do I say it's for unbelievers only? Okay, well, let's, uh, let me turn there so I can have it in front of me. Yeah, always ask clarifying questions if you ever have them, okay? All right, so it says, it uh, talks about apostasy in 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So, why would we say that this refers to believers? Whenever it says... They're paying attention to deceitful spirits. They're paying attention to doctrines of demons. They uh, are carried away, swept away by these false doctrines. They are owned by the false doctrines, seared as with a branding iron in their conscience. They um, and then a list the examples of the doctrines forbidding marriage and abstaining from foods. Why would we say uh, that these are believers? Like it's her, but no, no, like, what, what, like that they're
2: away
0: from right. Away from that is the only evidence in there, right? That that they're believers. Okay, so now let's think about this. Anybody who's associated with the faith is that person always going to be regenerate? No. Yes. <laughs> but I got, I, this I this is a trick question. <laughs> All right. Well. Can a true believer apostatize?
2: Associate? No. Did you say
0: associate? Yeah. Oh. No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. And why can't a true believer apostatize? Okay. So if you've been redeemed by Jesus and you're in His hand, you can't be snatched away like these people have been snatched away. Because they had been snatched away, right? We, we Well, I'm, I'm getting into it. And we see in Ephesians 4.30, write down, write down John 10, that's what I was just quoting, and write down Ephesians 4.30. In Ephesians 4.30, it says that by the Holy Spirit, we are sealed until... It gives us a time period. It doesn't say we are sealed until we're mature in Christ and then we're free to lose our salvation. It doesn't say we're sealed for a year... It doesn't say the seal is best by a certain date. It says that we are sealed until the day of redemption. And so when the Holy Spirit enters into our lives and causes us to be born again to a living hope, He doesn't just stay with us for a moment, but He seals us all the way until the day of redemption. But then you still have to figure out, well, what is this apostasy stuff? Because you have people who are in the church, and then they fall away. Two more passages to write down. One is Hebrews 6. This gets into a little bit of detail. It, it, talks about, <laughs> it talks about those who have tasted the truth, who have seen the power of the Holy Spirit, and they still fall away. That's pretty remarkable stuff. But then you also need to write down 2 Thessalonians 2. Because in 2 Thessalonians 2, we get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain on apostasy. It's not talking about a current generation apostasy, but a last generation apostasy. Where it says there will be a great falling away, and it says that even God will cause people, this is pretty wild, to be deluded. So that's 2 Thessalonians 2. So apostasy doesn't happen apart from God. Apostasy doesn't happen against God's will. But in conjunction with God's will, and God is intimately involved. Now if we want to get into all the details of what that what that means, He just doesn't give us all the details. But we can say that enough. So we can say on the one hand, those who are born again will never fall away. They've been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. No one can be snatched out of the, out of the Father's hand. And then you also have the reality of... Apostasy is predicted by God Himself, and He says that He's involved in it. And so it's not something that's happening like God can't hold on to people because they're taking themselves away. But God is actually the one who is involved in causing it to happen, to bring about His purposes, at least in that last generation in the end. Okay? God is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. Steve and then Lizzie. I was listening to a Christian radio, and they were talking about
1: how the Christian church uh, only 12
2: percent of Christian church has a biblical worldview.
0: Yeah. That's so, what about the other percent? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's amazing that <laughs> it's amazing that they have not yet outwardly apostatized when clearly they have done so inwardly already. Right? Why haven't we seen more apostasy? Is really the question. Lizzie. Okay. Well, if it comes back, just let me know. All right, I want to try to get through this lesson today, so we'll see. What are our responsibilities regarding the conscience? This is the second half of the lesson. What are our responsibilities regarding the conscience, okay? First thing that we want to say is that we must pursue the truth by which our consciences are shaped and cleansed. We must pursue the truth by which our consciences are shaped and cleansed. So if you're a believer... That means you're over here on this side of things, okay? You've crossed over from darkness into light. Amen. Here you are. What is your responsibility now that you have been given this judicial status by God and that you've been set free to grow in the knowledge of God and strengthen in your conscience? Well, the first thing is that we must pursue the truth by which our consciences are shaped and cleansed. And this really has two parts to it. The first part is informing. We want to discover what is good and acceptable and perfect in the eyes of God, don't we? Now where do those three adjectives come from? Good, acceptable and perfect. What passage? Nope. Nope. Stop it.
1: I got more
0: <laughs> Therefore, therefore. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and perfect and acceptable. Good, acceptable, perfect. Now what passage is it? Romans 12. Okay, good job, good job. Romans 12:1 and 2. And Jerry, you know what Ephesians 5.10 says, don't you? What are we to discover? What is pleasing to the Lord. Very good. There. Yes. Ephesians 5.10 says, we need to make it our aim to try to discover what is pleasing to the Lord. That's a crazy verse. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, don't we know what is pleasing to the Lord? Well, we do know as a baseline, we believe in the gospel, we walk by faith and not by sight, And yet there are all kinds of decisions we have to make all day, every day, in so many different situations. What should be in front of you as you're living your life? Trying to please the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, seeking to please the Lord in all respects, Colossians chapter 1. That's what needs to be in front of us. So we need to inform our minds, discover what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now the weak brother, let's all go to Romans 14 now. Romans chapter 14. The weak brother... The weak brother who cannot eat the meat, remember uh, we were talking about vegetarians and non-vegetarians in Romans 14. The weak brother is the vegetarian, the stronger brother believes he can eat the meat. The weak brother, the vegetarian, didn't have accurate knowledge, and or just wasn't free to eat meat because of God's personal work in his life. But I think it's fair to say that if someone is so weak in conscience saying, we, we all must be vegetarians, I must be a vegetarian, you should be a vegetarian. That person needs to be informed by the scriptures that that's not a doctrine of God. That might be his personal conviction, but that's not a God-given doctrine. And so the aim for that person, that weaker brother, is to inform his own conscience. Would someone read Romans 14.5 and Romans 14.22, verses 5 and
1: 22? 14.5. Okay. Okay. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind.
0: All right, and verse 22.
1: 22. The faith that you have, keep, keep between yourself and God. Blessed, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself.
0: Alright, so when we're talking about informing our own consciences, informing our minds by the truth, that God would work on our consciences by the truth, that means, according to verse 5, to be fully convinced in our own minds. When it comes to doubtful things in the Christian life or matters of opinion, what's your responsibility? To inform yourself. That you would be fully convinced by the truth in your own mind what is right. When it comes to matters of opinion, that's your goal. Verse 22, another aspect of that is to approve all your own activity. Happy or blessed is the one who is not condemned in what he approves to do, he doesn't condemn himself in what he approves. So as you are informing yourself, as you're studying the Word of God, and you're learning by truth and the counsel of God's people, your goal is to be convinced of and in approval of all of your own activity. Because right knowledge, correct knowledge, truth, will help you to move from a weak state in conscience to a strong state, if that's what the Lord has for you. The Lord is never going to give you a strong conscience in matters of opinion without knowledge. So you have to pursue knowledge to be informed, okay? Thoughts or questions on informing your conscience? All right? The other aspect of that is living. Not just informing, but living. What is your responsibility when it comes to pursuing the truth by which your consciences are shaped and cleansed? Well, right living is the other one. And would someone pick up those two verses in Acts 23.1 and 24.16? Okay. I'm
2: looking... Intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And 24.16 says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man.
0: All right. What is Paul saying about his own conscience in those two verses? One at a time. Like clean All right, but how? All right, bye. Sorry, I'm trying to th- process what you guys are saying and write at the same time. I should have done this earlier. All right. Yeah, by maintaining maintaining what? Who said maintaining? Was that you, Logan? What's he maintaining?
1: Blameless
0: conscience. All right. Before God. Which means I mean just elementary level stuff, which means what? Free time. No, but how do you how do you how do you keep a blameless conscience?
2: Doing what's good, acceptable,
0: and perfect. Okay, all right. Maintain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By by maintaining what, though? God's truth, right? God's standards. It's not maintaining your own standards, your own opinions. It's maintaining maintaining what God has said and how he has personally led you with your own convictions. It was Paul's aim to be morally upright for conscience's sake. Paul wanted to have a clear, clean conscience, and he could only do this by being morally upright. So consciences are shaped, as a Christian, they are moved from weak to strong by informing in the truth, getting information, what God has said, what is true, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. You have to stimulate the old gray matter here, okay? if you want a stronger conscience. But they're kept free and clean by living out the truth. So they're shaped by informing, but they're kept free and clean by living out the truth. All right, there's another passage. I'll read this one for us. It's 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, a great passage on apologetics. But listen to what it says about the conscience. 1 Peter 3, 15, it says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Listen to this. And keep a good conscience, So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That was 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. So our faithful living has a very practical impact on our lives, doesn't it? Keeping a good conscience has a very practical impact. Paul here is saying, or Peter rather, is saying, by keeping that good conscience, when you get slandered, it'll be obvious that they're wrong. Because you have a reputation... For living a morally upright life, you've kept a good conscience. That's a very practical aspect of the conscience. So, l- this living aspect is simply living out reality. When it comes to living out the truth, we know that judicially, where is it? Right here. Judicially, we're clean, aren't we? From God's perspective, are we ever going to be defiled in our mind and conscience again by nature? Will God ever reverse our nature to make us defiled by nature? No. However, do you want to feel free? Do you want to feel clean? Well, there's an element of live out the truth. Because you will feel defiled and polluted when you go off doing those things that you know you shouldn't do. That's what Paul is saying in in Acts. Up until this day, I've kept a good conscience. I've kept a clear conscience. And I tell you what, when you've reached that point in your life, and trust me, you, you reach it and then you fall really quickly, and then you reach it again you fall really quickly. But when you're there, there's no better feeling in the world than having a clear conscience before God. You're experiencing what is true judicially. From God's perspective as the judge, that's true. You're clear. But to experience, really feel that in your day-to-day living, no better feeling in the world. Not a better feeling. Okay? So this means not just informing ourselves by Scripture, but living out what we are to do as far as God has said, this is good, this is acceptable, this is perfect. And go back to the last verse of Romans 14, the very last verse of Romans 14 This living out also includes abstaining from what you personally cannot approve in faith. It says in verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So picture this in the church of Rome. It's a potluck. Two men are sitting next to each other having hamburgers or pork carnitas or whatever it is. They're just sitting there eating One of them is in sin and the other one isn't. And they're doing the exact same thing. Why is that? Because God has so personally worked in one of their consciences on this issue that he's not free to do it because there's doubt in his mind. There's doubt in his heart. He's not free to go forth. The other one is free. And that one isn't. All right. So it's not just informing; it's living out that information and living out your personal convictions given to you by God. One more thing before we finish. One more thing. All right. <clears throat> Beyond ourselves, it is imperative that we care for each other's consciences, not just our own. But we're responsible to care for each other's consciences, and this is crazy. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Romans 14 and uh, one verse and fifteen. Would someone read for us Romans 14 one to three? Romans 14 verses one through three. Go ahead. Oh, your wife raised her hand like she was supposed to. Receive oh, <laughs> <go ahead>.
2: one <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's it. That's it.
2: Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him.
0: Okay, so beyond ourselves, it is imperative that we care for each other's consciences. It's not just imperative that you care for your own. And this is heavy. It's imperative that in God's household, we take care of each other's consciences. And it starts with accepting one another, which is modeling God's acceptance. Okay? That's the first thing to know is accept one another. What does it mean to accept one another in the church?
1: We tolerate differences of More than that? Love
0: you embrace their different opinions. We don't just tolerate different opinions. We embrace different opinions. That's what it means to accept one another in the church. To accept this diverse body that God is building. That the foot is not the hand. That the nose is not the eye. Embrace that. Our natural tendency, and this gets to every one of us, our natural tendency is to create cookie cutter people. I know what I like and what I do, and it's got to be right. Everybody should be like me. Nope. Well, the next level up from that is tolerating others. And the next level up from that is embracing one another. Bringing them in and saying, come on, brother. Come on, sister. Come on in. However God has shaped you. Come on. Let's go. And he does that shaping always in the truth, of course. So that doesn't mean we tolerate sin. We never, certainly never embrace sin and we never tolerate sin. But outside of that, opinions, doubtful things, bring it on. Let's have fun. Joe. I'm not going to argue with you, because I know I'm right. <laughs> Are you accepting me right now?
2: Are you embracing
0: Well, this acceptance, that is a need that we all have, isn't it? Name one person who doesn't need acceptance. We all need acceptance. Now drop down to ver, uh, chapter 15. Still in Romans, 15 verse 7. Someone read 15, 7. Look how deep this acceptance goes. got it. Okay.
2: Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God.
0: What's our standard for accepting one another? How much has Christ embraced you? That's how much you are to embrace your fellow believer with the different opinions. It's good. Forgive and welcome, that's it, yes. And don't take these things, opinions, that God has personally laid on the heart of one of his children and push someone against that or cause that person to stumble. Don't do that. But embrace, accept one another just as Christ has accepted us. It's an opportunity to reflect gospel grace in the church. And the weak do this. How do the weak accept the strong? By not judging the strong. How do the weak model Christ's embrace of us? By not judging the strong. And how do the strong model this toward the weak? By not despising the weak. So no matter where you are in the spectrum, don't judge and don't despise. But love as Christ has loved and has taken us in unconditionally. And this continues, this acceptance and responsibility to care for one another's consciences, it continues by living responsibly for each other's sake, not causing any stumbling. Let's look at verses 13 and 16, Romans 14, 13 and 16. Would someone read those two verses for us? Thirteen and sixteen. Who's got it? All right.
2: Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacles in the way of a brother or sister. And therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken
0: of people. All right. So in verse thirteen, our active duty is to remove all obstacles or stumbling blocks in a brother or sister's way. That's your active duty. In verse 16, don't let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. So this means to an uncomfortable extent, the church family's eyes guide our activity. To an uncomfortable extent, we have to be so aware of one another's consciences that we adapt our living for the sake of our brother or sister in Christ. This is love. It's sacrifice. It's giving up what is for you a good thing just for the fact that it won't be spoken of as evil among your brothers or sisters in Christ. Now, lots of application questions stem from that. We're not getting into that. The principle's right there. We are to sacrifice for the sake of our brother, give up something that will cause him or her to stumble. Give it up. Just forget it. What is that to you? Who are you? Give it up because you love that person. And if you know that's going to throw him off or her off, do everything you can to get it out of the way if you love that person. What is your freedom? Mm -hmm. It's not for you. Your freedom is for the body of Christ. Your freedom is to serve. What does the Bible say? Don't use your your freedom, your liberty in Christ for selfish gain, not as a cover for sin. But don't use it on yourself. But use it for others, for the sake of others, to be a slave of all people. Don't use your spiritual freedom to put your brother in spiritual danger. I have this freedom in Christ. Okay, but if you go around wielding that sword that God gave you, if you go around wielding it you're probably going to cut your brother in certain situations. So you got to know when that freedom is to be restrained and when it can be used for God's glory in the church. All right? Verse 19
2: says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual thought building.
0: That's it. Verse 19 is the goal. Peace and edification. Absolutely. Two minutes for questions. Lizzie. I don't know what my question is. All right. you can have a, um, as a Christian, you can have a bad feeling conscience. That's why Scripture, well Paul says, and then Peter instructs, keep a good conscience. Paul says, I've kept a good conscience, Peter tells us, keep a good conscience. Now what is the implication of that? If you don't, you're going to be at least feeling like you have a bad conscience, okay? Now there's never a reversal of what God has said as the ultimate judge. When God has said innocent. It's final. Never to be held guilty again. All was poured out on Christ. You're never going to atone for any of your sins. And it's all done in Christ. It is finished. When Jesus Christ it is finished, it is finished. All right? However, there is an aspect of your God-given conscience feeling bad. God uses it to convict you of sin by His Holy Spirit. And so you're going to feel... Uh, if nothing else, I, I keep saying feel. I don't really like that word. But you're gonna. if nothing else, you're going to keep feeling polluted, okay? But and from God's perspective, you'll never become a natural person again. You're only born again once. You're not going to be born again again, and it's a reversal, okay? That's not going to happen. You're only born again once, and it go, it's when you become spiritual. I'm
2: sorry. Can you
0: explain In the negative one minute that I have, I cannot. But... We, yes, I will sometime. Okay, all right. We, we, we'll, we can revisit it when we have more time. Andy.
2: So the judicial status of Christians, it's one of the things that I've never understood is if it's God alone who says, this is the one that redeems us 100%, how could I, in my sinful nature, Ever pull myself out of his religion. Yeah. If I'm holding Jesus' hand, nothing can take me
0: away. Yep. He's God. Right yep. That's it. If and notice you didn't say if I'm holding Jesus' hand. Right. You said passively, if I am held in Jesus' hand. Right. And that's what's happening. Yep. Alright, let me pray and uh then we'll move on to the next thing. Thanks so much for If no one else had fun, I had a blast. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for your good involvement in our lives, how you have spoken to us by your word and declared us yours for all eternity. We are your church that you are building What an amazing thought. And God, we also thank you for these individual consciences that we have that both lead to a a common proclamation of this salvation and unique ways of living. God, give us peace in the church through the embracing of one another and the adapting of our lifestyles to care for one another. And help us to be better stewards of our own conscience. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.